Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I really missed worshiping with you guys last week. If there's uh, any question as to whether or not I love you guys, uh, I was sitting in church uh, in Kentucky last Sunday and uh, was worshiping, and it was great. Um, But the entire time I was thinking, man, I really wish... Uh, I was with my family of faith. I was with. I wish I was here at Freedom Fellowship. And so uh, I love you guys. I missed you guys. Uh, and I'm so glad to be back worshiping with you, singing with you, opening up God's word with you. Uh, we're going to be continuing this series of, of catching the vision, uh, going through our mission statement and values. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about our value of engaging the lost. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about training up disciples. Training up disciples we value helping believers grow in the image of Christ. We value helping believers grow in the image of Christ. Simple, it's straightforward. That's what we're going to see here uh, in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 7 this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today. Saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your wisdom, for your glory, for your grace. God, you are infinitely superior to the rest of us. You are God, you are the creator, and and the rest of us are just creatures. So God, we worship you. We praise you. I thank you that you have placed us in your body, the church, that we aren't alone, that we aren't solo trying to wander around the world, trying to live this Christian life, but you have brought us together into the church. We pray, Father, that we would be a church that glorifies you and honors you with everything that we do pray that we would be a church that is training up disciples who will praise you and glorify you and honor you all the days of their lives. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. When I was in middle school and high school, uh, our uh, school district had what was called late arrival on Thursdays. Uh, So normally in high school, our our school would start at 7.25 a.m., But on Thursdays, we had late arrivals, so we were able to come in at 9.30 instead of 7.25, uh, which was was awesome. Uh, I know a lot of school districts don't do that. I realize now that I've been out of my school district. I've I've traveled a little bit. I've noticed that that's not normal, but that that was fantastic. I loved every moment of that. Well, the youth pastors at my church decided to take that morning that we would otherwise be able to sleep in and not let us sleep in. That was the idea. Uh, instead of sleeping in, they decided to invite us to Chick-fil-A to gather together to open up the Word of God together and talk about what it means for our lives, to see, to see how God was working in our lives, to discuss it. So what we did was every Thursday morning, instead of sleeping in, we would get in our cars or get into our parents' cars, and we would uh, drive to Chick-fil-A, and then just a swarm of middle schoolers and high schoolers would descend on Chick-fil-A. I felt really bad for those employees. Like, it's bad enough that you're the morning shift at Chick-fil-A, uh, but then you see 30 middle schoolers and high schoolers just swarm inside. Uh, that, that is uh, awful. Like, I feel so bad for them. But we were there, and we, uh, we ordered our food. We sat down, and we would just open up the Bible, and we would say, this is what the Lord is showing me this week. This is what the Lord is teaching me. This is what the Lord is doing in my life. And we were encouraging one another. What was happening there on Thursday mornings was discipleship. What we were doing was encouraging each other, training each other, teaching each other to follow Jesus. Those are some of the most foundational moments for me in my walk with the Lord. I grew so much in middle school and high school because on Thursday mornings, we would just talk about what God was doing. I was able to process what I was learning from his word, and we were able to encourage and push each other to follow Jesus. We did that every single week. That's discipleship. Discipleship is pushing each other to follow Jesus. Discipleship is is training and encouraging each other to live in accordance to the word of God, to be the people that God has called us to be. That's discipleship. Well, what we see this morning in this text in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 is that every single one of us needs to train up men and women who respond to God's word with obedience and faith. Every single one of us needs to train up men and women who respond to the word of God in obedience and with faith. 
And the writer of Hebrews gives us two reasons that we need to do this. Two reasons we need to train up men and women to be obedient to the word of God. And the first reason is this. God rejects the rebellious. God rejects the rebellious. If you see, beginning in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews quotes a psalm, Psalm 95, or part of Psalm 95. And he quotes it in part. He says here in verse 7, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not, shall not enter my rest. So this whole passage, all of what we're talking about this morning, is really the writer of Hebrews breaking down that psalm and, and teaching it and applying it to our lives. And what that psalm is talking about is uh, an Old Testament passage uh, an Old Testament story with the Israelites. So this is like Inception this morning, right? I'm preaching from Hebrews, which is preaching on Psalms, which is talking about a story that happened way back in the book of Numbers. So try to follow that if you can. Um, but in order to understand this, I'm going to get us back to uh, that story in Numbers, what this is all referring back to. So we know the ancient Israelites. We know the story of Exodus, right? That God rescued Israel from slavery, that he, uh, this is where the parting of the Red Sea happens, where God parts the Red Sea and over a million Israelites are able to walk through on dry land. And so that's the ancient Israelites. And when they walked out of slavery, when they, when they walked through dry land in between the parted seas, they walked towards the promised land. And it's called the promised land because God promised it to them over 400 years before. God promised it to Abraham. He said, this land will be yours and then 400 years later, here are the over a million Israelites walking through on dry land headed towards the promised land. God rescued them from Egypt and set them free to go into the promised land. God promised that if they got to the promised land and that they entered in, they would enter into his rest. That they would have rest from their enemies. They would have rest and peace on all sides. They would have, they would have rest almost uh, going back to Genesis chapter 1, this perfect reality. That's what they would experience if they entered into the promised land and took it as he commanded them to do. So they, the Israelites are walking through. They had seen so many incredible things, right? They walked through, just, just walking through two massive parts of water uh, on dry land is already incredible enough, but they're walking through. And as they're walking along, God is leading them with a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. And they are, they are all watching this. They are all witnessing it. They get to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and God descends on the mountain in clouds and thunder and smoke, and God speaks to them from the mountain. And God gives Moses the law from the mountain. So all of these Israelites see God speak to Moses, and he sees God speak to them. God feeds the Israelites, this group of Israelites, with manna, these little wafers that just appeared in the morning on the ground for them to pick up and eat so they could survive. God poured water out from them from a rock twice. And God appeared to them and did so many miracles to them. They, they noticed and saw all of these different things on their way to the promised land. But what happened was they got right to the edge of the promised land. They were right on the outskirts of the promised land. They were right on the outskirts of entering into God's rest. And they sent in 12 spies to go check out the land. And these 12 spies, they go through the land, and they notice that the land is even better than God promised. And the land was, they said, flowing with milk and honey. 
right? That the land had these beautiful fruit trees that were filled with fruit. They had uh, all this pasture land for their animals. This land was, was perfect for them. It was even better than God told them it would be. It was even better than God had promised. But uh, they also noticed that there were some fortified cities there, that there were some armies, that there were some, some people groups there. So the, the 12 spies come back to Israel, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are excited. They say, this land is even better than God promised. If we go in and we take it, God is on our side. We will enter into his rest. We'll have this beautiful Genesis chapter 1 reality. Let's go in. Let's go take it. Those two are excited, but the other 10 saw the fortified cities and got scared. So they made up a lie to tell the Israelites. They said, oh, the land is filled with giants. I mean, these people, 10 feet tall, and these massive armies that we're going to have to fight against, and these walls, we, we can't go in and take it. Like, the land is great, don't get me wrong, but we're all going to die if we go in and take it. And the whole generation of Israelites sided with those 10 spies. It didn't matter that they had heard the word of God, right? They had heard God's promise. They knew that God was on their side. It didn't matter that God had already rescued them from the greatest superpower in the world at that time. It didn't matter that they had been uh, walking through on dry land through, a red, through the Red Sea. It didn't matter that God had provided for them food, that God had provided for them water. It didn't matter that God was clearly and evidently on their side. It, none of those things mattered. They decided when they heard the word of God, they were going to rebel. Instead of responding in faith and obedience, they rebelled against the word of God, and they rejected God's command, and they walked away. They decided not to enter the promised land. So God was obviously angry. He had set out this promised land for them. He had done all these things to provide for his people. He had rescued them from slavery, and they were right there. They were right on the outskirts of the promised land. They were right there about to enter his rest and, and they rejected him and rebelled against him. So God, in his wrath, said they're never going in. If they don't want to go in, if they don't want to enter my rest, that's fine. They are never going in. And every single one of those people, every single one of that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, because they're righteous, but all of the other ones, every single one of them are going to die in the wilderness. And so the Israelites were forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years until every single person of that generation had died and their bodies were buried out there in the wilderness because God, in his wrath, told them that he, they would never enter his rest. God, in his wrath, told them they would never enter his land because they responded to his word with disobedience. God rejects the rebellious, and that helps us understand the psalm in Psalm 95, which the, the writer of Hebrews quotes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. We see in verse 16, it says, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to that story, and he says those people, that generation was unable to enter God's rest. They were unable to enter the promised land because they responded to the word of God with unbelief. They were rebellious and disobedient to God's word. And it's easy for us to hear that story and to read that story kind of at arm's length. And it's easy for us to read and hear that story and say, those dumb Israelites, like those people, you gotta be kidding me. Like obviously, just go in, right? God's on your side. It's really easy to read that story with arm's length and to to make fun and put down the Israelites. But the problem is, that their story could just as easily be ours. Their story can just as easily be our story. The writer of Hebrews goes on in the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what the writer of Hebrews does is he shows that there are a lot of striking similarities between us and that generation of Israelites. He shows that we should not be reading that story at arm's length, distancing ourselves from it as if we have nothing in common with them, because at the end of the day, we're in very similar situations. The good news came to them, that they had the opportunity to enter God's rest, and they rebelled. But in the same way, the good news has come to us that we have the opportunity to enter God's rest. That we have the opportunity to receive eternal life. That we have the opportunity to receive peace and joy and life from God. The good news has come to us. And yet, so many of us rebel. So many of us reject it. We're no better than the Israelites. We're no better than that generation. Their story can just as easily be ours, where we're right there on the outskirts of the rest of God, outskirts on the peace of God, outskirts of the life that God provides. We are right there, and yet we don't go in, because instead of responding with faith and obedience, we respond with disobedience and rebellion. Their story is our story. The writer of Hebrews says there's a chance, there's an opportunity for us to enter God's rest today. And it should terrify us that there might be people here, there may be people in this church, there may be people that we worship with who are right there on the outskirts of God's rest, right there on the outskirts of eternal life, but have never actually gone in. Who are right there, just about to receive eternal life, but instead of receiving it, are responding with rebellion and disobedience. Let us fear that there may be some among us, there may be some here, who have not entered into God's rest and whose story looks strikingly similar to the Israelites. Several decades ago, this phrase kept popping up, in American churches, which is uh, once saved, always saved. 
And what it is is a, uh, is a, a quick way to say kind of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, the idea that, that Christians will persevere, that, that, that once you're saved, once you place your faith in Jesus, nothing is going to shake that. Nothing is going to take you from God's hand. I think that's clearly what the Bible teaches. But I don't like the way that we say it, once saved, always saved. Because what's that, what that has done in American churches over the last several decades is to, to prop up as a goal conversion. That our goal is to make converts instead of making disciples. So what we want to do is we want to get people to just cross the line. right? We want to get people to sign a box saying that they're going to follow Jesus. We want to get people to say a certain prayer to make sure they're going to follow Jesus. We want, to, we want to get people in the baptistry so that we can dunk them and say, yes, they're following Jesus. We want to make converts because once saved, always saved, right? Once I can get you to cross that line, check that box, say that prayer, get in the water, then you're good. You're saved. You're good to go. And so we make converts instead of making disciples. And we have churches full of people who have checked a box, who have said a prayer, who have been dunked underwater, but are right there on the outskirts of the rest of God who are right there on the outskirts of eternal life because eternal life doesn't come from checking a box or saying a prayer or getting dunked underwater. None of those things offer eternal life. We can enter God's rest through faith and obedience to his word. Our goal is not converts. Our goal is disciples, people who follow Jesus because God rejects the rebellious. It doesn't matter if you have done all of those things, that you've checked those boxes, you've said that prayer, you've got baptized, it doesn't matter if you've spent your entire life in church if your heart is in rebellion against God. If you are disobedient to his word, God rejects the rebellious. You're not actually experiencing the rest of God. You're not actually experiencing eternal life. What you're really doing is standing right there on the outskirts of the promised land, right there on the outskirts of his rest, ha never having actually gone in. And this morning, some of you may be here thinking, I wonder who he's talking about. And what I want you to entertain is that I might be talking about you. The word of God teaches that God rejects the rebellious. If all we have to go back to on whether or not we're a follower of Jesus, is that moment where we checked a box, said a prayer, or got baptized, if all we have to go back to is that moment of conversion, then there's a good chance we're not a follower of Jesus. Because if the rest of our life looks like rebellion and disobedience to God, and all we have to go back to as proof is that we signed a box or said a prayer or, or got dunked, and there's a good chance that we're living in rebellion and disobedience to God. And God rejects the rebellious. Like the writer of Hebrews says, it should terrify us to think about the fact that we can come here together and we can sing together, we can open up God's word together, we can take communion together, we can do all of these things, and yet there may be people here who have yet to enter God's rest. God rejects the rebellious. And that's why we train up disciples who respond correctly to the word of God, because God rejects the rebellious. The second reason, and the flip side of that, the reason that we train up disciples who respond to God's word with obedience and faith is because God 
extends rest to his people. God extends rest to his people. Look with me in verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain uh, at the beginning of chapter 4, what he goes on to explain is what this rest looks like. What does he mean when he talks about God's rest? We see in verse 4, sorry, the second half of verse 3 of chapter 4. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he, sa- he points us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where it says God rested on the seventh day. So God's work is complete. God's work is done. God's rest is there, and it's available. But what we see in Psalms 95 is that not everybody has actually entered God's rest. Right? God is at rest. His work is complete, and it's been done since the seventh day of creation. And yet there are some people who have not entered that rest, who have not received it, who have not experienced it. That's what we see when he says, they shall not enter my rest. So he says in verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he says there was a time when God extended an invitation for his rest to the ancient Israelites. He said, if you just go in and take the land, you will receive my rest. And they rejected it. But we serve a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who gives ample opportunities to have us enter his rest. And so God, it says in Psalms 95, God appointed another day to allow us to enter his rest. And you know what that day is called? Today. God has appointed a day for us to enter his rest, and that day is called today. As long as it is called today, we have the opportunity to enter God's rest. We have the opportunity to experience eternal life, to experience joy and peace and satisfaction from God. He goes on to explain a little bit more of what that looks like in verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So, when we bring it back to the ancient Israelites, there's really closely tied to this idea of rest and entering the promised land. But the thing is, once that generation of Israelites all died, Joshua then led a new generation of Israelites into the promised land. They entered Canaan. And so if God's rest was just entering the promised land, then God wouldn't have had to extend another opportunity. Right? They would have already had it. They would have, they would have had rest. But what the writer of Hebrews says is Joshua couldn't provide them that rest because God's rest is not just entering the promised land. God's rest is a spiritual rest where you're at peace with God where you have joy and life and satisfaction from God. That's rest. Where you no longer have to work to earn God's satisfaction. Where you're no longer trying to work to earn and receive eternal life. 
That's rest. Rest is, is stopping your search for meaning in life. It's stopping your attempts to, to try to find joy and satisfaction in things that are ultimately empty and broken and finding your rest in him. That's rest. That's why Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest is having eternal peace with God and it's something that we can experience today. We will one day experience the fullness of his rest when we are in his presence and basking in his glory and experiencing that for all of eternity in heaven. But it's a rest that we can experience in part today when our soul is at peace with God and where we can experience his joy and his life and his satisfaction. We can have that rest today. God extends rest to his people. How do we receive it? How do we enter into that rest? How do we, how do we receive that eternal life? How do, we, how do we not stand on the outskirts but actually get in? Well, the good news has been mentioned twice in this verse. If we're able to enter God's rest by the good news, which is the gospel, we're able to enter God's rest because of Jesus. Over 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus Christ to earth. It's what we celebrate here at Christmas. That God himself came to earth, God incarnate. He lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross to save us from our sins, and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. It's by the death and resurrection of Jesus that we're able to enter God's rest. God extends rest to his people. We see in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we see in that passage is the writer of Hebrews saying, Try, strive, long to get into God's rest, long to be part of his kingdom, long to receive the eternal life that comes from him. And the way that we do that is by responding to the word of God with obedience and faith in Jesus. It says the word, it seems out of place, but this passage, the word of God, and it goes on to talk about how it's sharp like a two-edged sword, cutting and piercing deep. It seems randomly placed here in the passage, but the idea is, that the word of God has gone forth. That's that it says in Psalms 95 today, if you hear his voice, the word of God has gone forth. And what happens when the word of God goes forth, when the gospel is proclaimed, when we teach an open scripture, it pierces deep into our soul. It goes beyond the outside, the, the, the things that we see. It goes beyond the boxes checked and the prayers said and the water dunking. It goes beyond the going to church. It goes beyond the doing good things. It goes beyond all of the external things and it pierces deep into our soul and exposes what's there and it shows us whether we're really followers of Jesus. Are we people who are obedient to the word of God? Are we people that are faithful to Christ? Are we people that have are lived in obedience to him? Or are we people that are rebellious and broken and disobedient to his word? When we open up scripture, it teaches us and shows us the things in our lives 
that are broken and displeasing to God, and it reveals in our hearts whether or not we're followers of Jesus. It'll show us the moments where we fall short. And it'll show us if we have a pattern of rebellion or if we have a pattern of faith and obedience to his word. And, and there is nothing that is hidden from God. We can't fool God by putting on a good show, by checking those boxes, by coming to church. We can't fool God by giving money to charity. We can't fool God by doing any of those things. At the end of the day, what matters is if we have a heart that is obedient to God's word, that responds to his word with faith. That's how we know if we're a follower of Jesus. That's how we know if we have entered into and experienced his rest. It's whether or not we have repented from our sin and we have turned to follow Jesus. Repentance is not just this, this lip service that says, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do it again. It's, this, it's a, a heart that's, that longs to follow Christ, that, that longs to reject and get rid of all the things in our lives that are disobedient to him and is longing to follow him. Are we people that are responding to his word with obedience and faith, or are we people that are responding to his word with disobedience and rebellion? And that's something that is exposed deep in your heart. Now, what does all this have to do with discipleship? What does all this have to do with training disciples? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us really his main theme all the way back in verse 12 of chapter 3. The main idea, what he gets out of this passage and what he wants us to see. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be, or brothers and sisters, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is a passage about discipleship and disciple-making because that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Now, if, if I have entered God's rest, if I have received eternal life from him, if I am experiencing a peace with God, that's great. But if there are people in this church that I am worshiping with who hasn't, people in this church who have not experienced that eternal life, and that's tragic. That is tragic that I can go on experiencing the life that God provides, the rest for, uh, and, my, and the peace that he provides. I can go on experiencing that while I'm worshiping with, worshiping with people who are right there on the outskirts of his rest, never having actually gone in. So the writer of Hebrews says, take care lest any of you would be hardened by sin and encourage each other push each other to follow Jesus so that none of you may be enticed away by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what happens when we disciple. We gather together and we train up men and women who respond to God's word with obedience and faith. When I gathered with that group on Thursday mornings, we talked about what the word of God says. We allowed God's word to expose the things in our lives that were disobedient to him. And we encouraged each other to follow Jesus and to be faithful to his word. 
I want to get a group of guys together where we, we disciple each other, where we push each other to follow Jesus so that I can be confident, not just that I have experienced God's rest, but that all of us have experienced God's rest, that we are all pushing each other to look like Jesus, to be faithful to his word and obedient to his word so that we can say with confidence that we will all stand together before the throne on Judgment Day, praising God and celebrating the life that we have in him. And then I want to send those guys out to start more discipleship groups so that my new group and all of their new groups can all worship God together, all enter his rest and experience his rest together so that all of us can stand before the throne of God celebrating him and worshiping him on Judgment Day. And I want that to continue and continue until this entire church is filled up with people who can confidently say that they have entered God's rest and have experienced his rest today and the peace and the joy and the life that he provides so that every single one of us will stand before his throne on Judgment Day worshiping him and praising him for his salvation. And I want that to continue and continue to bring in people from outside the church as we see more and more people becoming disciples of Christ. Notice in Matthew 28, with the passage we talked about two weeks ago, the command that Jesus gives to his church is not that they would go and make converts. The command that Jesus gives to his church is go and make disciples. And what he's, he, he gives a little bit of, uh, he fleshes that out a little bit and teaches us a little bit more of what that means. And he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Check. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Discipleship doesn't just mean conversion. It doesn't just mean checking the box and ducking them under. What discipleship means is teaching them to observe all that God commanded them. It is training up men and women who respond with obedience and faith to the word of God. We want to be a church that disciples one another, brings in more and makes more disciples so that all of us can enjoy and experience God's rest. This morning, I'm going to ask you, are you discipling anybody? Are you engaged in a discipleship relationship? Are you meeting with people regularly to talk about the Word of God and to hold, hold each other accountable? We're going to begin a, a, a more uh, formal discipleship program next year. But in the meantime, you don't have to wait for us to, to kick that off and get that going. The need is still there. If you follow Jesus, it should burden your heart that there might be people here who do not follow Jesus. And so what you should long to do is to gather with a group of believers and just encourage each other to follow Christ. To encourage each other to do what God has called us to do. So in the meantime, as we're getting ready to launch this official program, are you meeting with anybody? Find a group, if you're a guy, find a group of guys. If you're a lady, find a group of ladies and meet with each other and encourage each other to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Encourage each other to be faithful and obedient to what God has called you to do. Some of you this morning know that you're in that first group. You may, you may have checked a box, you may have said a prayer, you may have been baptized, you may, be, you may have been in church your entire life, but you know that deep down in your heart, that as the word of God pierces your heart and exposes what's inside, you know that you are rebellious against him, that you have never responded with faith and obedience to his word, that you have never actually repented from your sin 
and trusted in Christ for salvation. Well, this morning, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love for just to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to, to stop standing on the outskirts of eternal life and to actually step in. So this morning, if that's you, I would love for you to come talk to me about what it means to follow Jesus. I would just love to pray with you during the song and then after the service, just go in that room over there and just talk to you a little bit more about what it means to follow Christ. This morning, every single one of us has some response. Either we need to follow Christ for the very first time or we need to encourage one another to do it every single day. So whatever your response is, as I pray for you, respond to God in the way that he has called you to respond to him. And we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace that comes from Jesus, the, the opportunity to enter your rest. Or we don't have to work to earn your salvation. Or we don't have to, to work to, to earn your favor. God, where we don't have to, to keep searching this world to find something that will satisfy us, something that will give us peace. But God, you offer all of those things as you give us an opportunity to enter your rest. I pray, Father, that every single person here would experience your rest. That they would experience it today and they would stand before your throne worshiping you for all of eternity in perfect peace. Father, it, it breaks my heart that there may be people here who have all the, all the looks on the outside as being a true Christian, but in reality, in their heart, they are rebellious, disobedient to your word. Scott, I pray if that's anybody here, if there's anybody here who needs to enter into a relationship with you for the very first time, who needs to step over the boundary, to step over that border and to actually go in to your rest, God, I pray that they would come that this morning would be that moment. This morning would be that today for them when they enter into your rest. And God, let us be a church that disciples other followers of Jesus, that trains up men and women to live in obedience to your word. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.